For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, some new hope for Arizonans who have missing loved ones. I'll talk with a filmmaker about the journey her family's original Andy Warhol sculpture has taken since the 1970s. Meet Kay Long. You may already know her as the voice of Tucson Mass Transit. And find out how volunteers make a difference in Arizona State Parks. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In our state, there are thousands of missing persons reports that have now gone cold. Some of these cases are decades old. Nancy Montoya reports on an event planned for October that will offer new help to families who are looking for missing loved ones. Missing in Arizona is a project launched by the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. I'm excited this year we're going to have Tucson PD involved. That's Detective Tony Rodarte. He says anyone in Arizona looking for a loved one, whether you have filed a missing persons report or not, is invited to attend the Missing in Arizona day-long event next month in Phoenix. Come and bring us everything that you have. So if you have medical records, if you have x-rays, if you have dental information, bring it. DNA. DNA, anything. yep. And whatever you have, come and we will take a report and we will start an investigation. So it doesn't matter specifically what jurisdiction, there just has to be a connection to Arizona. Arizona. Dozens of detectives, forensic scientists, medical personnel, and volunteers will be there to reopen missing person cases or take a report. So um, what's the setup like? A family will come in and I kind of Im imagine a big bank of detectives so, yeah. taking in information. Is that pretty it, much what it's, we're talking uh, about? It's, it's organized. It's very organized. We do it in a big ballroom. Um, the first point of contact will be a registration and we have guides there. We have volunteers that will be with the family, help them out with the paperwork. And then there's a process that you go through um, with different stages. At one point, you're going to speak with an investigator who's going to ask questions. When did you last see your loved one? What's the relationship? When's the last time you heard from them? Who were they with? Medical conditions, things like that. There'll be another station for DNA to process DNA. Um, we will have medical examiners available. So if you do have medical paperwork, anything like that, it can be processed there. We can make copies. The whole goal is to be able to, when you leave there, you have a point of contact. For so many families, they've been marginalized for so many years. We have families that come and for decades, there's been no... Decades? Decades, absolutely. absolutely. And so families at some point start to lose hope. We all know it's traumatizing when we lose a loved one to, to death, but for these families, it's, it's a question mark. Maricopa County Detective John Little is also on the task force. We've often talked about people who are missing in Arizona as migrants, immigrants, mm -hmm. who cross the border and uh, they just become lost. Families in Mexico, families here don't know what happened to their loved ones. Would these families qualify for this, this event? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we want to make sure that we are representative of all populations that have missing loved ones, whomever they may be, whatever the circumstances. As Tony said at the very beginning, just has to be a nexus to the state of Arizona. That's what we're focused on, whether it's 
they, they worked here, whether they passed through here, whether they were crossing the border here, whatever that ends up being, we want to make sure that we give those families the attention. And all we're focused on as a law enforcement agency is the investigation at missing persons case. And that's something that's really important for us to reassure, uh, particularly our migrant population, that this is a safe environment that they can come report. Yeah, so the event is gonna be October 21st. Mm -hmm. um, we're gonna hold it at ASU West, um, out in Glendale, 47th Avenue and Thunderbird. Um, you do not have to pre-register. Just show, show up. up. Just, yep. just show up at the event, but you do not have to do anything in advance, even for the grief counseling. The reality is up. if you just show up, we're gonna take care of you. Wow, thank you both for joining us, and I hope the event is a success. Thank, thank you. you. How and why do we value art, especially pop art, a form where frames of reference and reasons for existence can change within days, if not hours, of creation? One of artist Andy Warhol's rare pieces of sculpture, a wooden representation of an industrial-sized box of Brillo pads, is the central subject of a new documentary by Lisanne Schuyler, an associate professor in the School of Theater, Film, and Television at the University of Arizona. The sculpture was originally purchased by her father when the Schuyler family was living in New York. Martin Schuyler collected art for enjoyment, and he and his wife Rita followed their tastes across movements, mediums, and decades. Although they sold the Warhol sometime around 1971, it resurfaced in 2010, when it was sold to a private collector for more than $3 million. The whole story is told in Lisanne Schuyler's film, Brillo Box, Three Cents Off. It's available to watch through HBO, and it's getting a local premiere this weekend at the Loft Cinema. There's this photo of me as a baby on, on the Brillo Box on our family album, and over the years, just looking at that picture, and, you know, first it was the question of, wait, how is it possible that we owned a Warhol? You know, and then it was the kind of understanding that Warhol went through these different phases in his career. And, you know, at what point did we get this Brillo box? And, and then, you know, how do we part with it? So the photo in that family album was kind of this mystery. Right before I started Brillo Box, I had just finished a short fiction film called Capture the Flag, which was a very nostalgic piece um, about a family in the 70s. And it just got me thinking about my own, my own story, my own family. When you approached your parents about being uh, interview subjects for the film, what was the reaction there? And uh, I understand that your parents are now separated. Yeah, spoiler. Um, they're very, you know, I guess that is a little bit of a spoiler, but they're very individualistic people. They come across great on film, but did they feel confident about participating? You know, it's so funny. We are kind of a show business family um, in the sense that um, my mom grew up in Los Angeles. She was from New York or born in Cleveland. They lived in New York. But she spent her formative years in L.A. And I think probably would have liked to act. Um, so what happened was my sister did acting as a kid. And I just think that was always part of our life. And storytelling also. I just, my memories of my family have a lot to do with the art, but also the stories around the work. So all that's to say that I knew my parents were great storytellers. And um, this idea just came out. I was literally driving with my mom. I thought, you know, what happened to this Brillo box? And wouldn't that be a great way to look into these decisions about art and value through this, the course and the path of one object. And the first thing I did was interview my parents to see what they would be like. And they were just very receptive. They sat, they dealt with all the, you know, camera and sound things and were just very comfortable around, around the camera and telling their stories. 
And to what extent did your parents' interest in art impact your early development? Definitely my memories are of being saturated with art. Uh, We were, you know, romping around the museums, the galleries. We were always just being taken to events and concerts also. Um, I remember my mom taking me to um, foreign films. I like to joke that I think I was doomed to be an artist or a filmmaker because really I was so exposed to so much uh-huh. and, um, and you know, interested in theater and, and creative writing and then photography and then w- with film, all those things, you know, came together. And I think Andy Warhol in particular, because I always think of him as this documentarian of our culture. And, you know, you look at all his works and they just reflect um, so much about what our values are as a country. Let's talk about the origin of the yellow Brillo boxes and how that came to be as part of Andy Warhol's Au revoir. I read recently a review of my film, actually, and it was by an art critic, and he talked about the sculpture as less of a sculpture and more of almost like a three-dimensional painting because, you know, they're flat and they're, um, they're silkscreened on each side. So he took the silkscreen method that he was doing and then applied it to all sides, you know, of, the, of these sculptures. They're really interesting because they heavily reflect this kind of domestic post-war, you know, um, boom in the economy and these products that we were so accustomed to and were so symbolic of prosperity. Um, Yet, you know, he didn't make the size that you would put in your kitchen. He made the size that would go from the factory, you know, assembly line to the supermarket, this kind of heavy, you know, like um, behind the scenes kind of thing too. Now you say that he silkscreened all the sides of the box, but that's not actually true. Oh, that's you're right. It's not the one. There's like the bottom that was. <laughs> but the bottom of the box in your case is unique. And yes. explain that for us. The Brillo boxes were presented at a very big show in New York at the Stable Gallery in 1964, and my father actually bought his a little bit later. So he was coming to this box after um, you know Warhol had done the soup cans, the Marilyns, but the Brillo box exhibition wasn't the big success that people thought it might be. So these little boxes, people didn't want them, and. My dad was very new as a collector, and he was advised by a friend that had got him interested in collecting. He said, oh, this will be a good investment, like a good starter piece. So, you know, like my dad wasn't so sure, and he said, well, I think Warhol should sign it. He wanted him to authenticate it. So when he asked um, Ivan Karp to go track down Andy to get the signature, my dad had that sense that he was being very gauche and like kind of being laughed at a little bit. So one can only imagine when Andy Warhol broke out the red crayon. Um, to sign it, that he was really having kind of fun with that with that idea. So our our box at the time was unique because Warhol didn't sign a lot of things, and my dad insisted on getting that signature. Flash forward to 40 years later, that little signature made the box pretty special. Something else interesting that your father decided to do was to get a plexiglass box made specifically to fit over the top of this Brillo box and protect it. And that allowed the Brillo box to really play a prominent role in your living room, even with three children in the house. The plexiglass was an amazing uh, foresight on my dad's part because, you know, the fact is if you want to put it in the middle of your room and have people interact with it, it would get damaged. And a lot of boxes didn't survive because in the beginning they weren't treated as like high art objects, you know, of value. Um, People didn't take very good care of them. And you often will see a lot of photos where they are being treated as furniture. You know, there's a famous photo of Leo Castelli's house with, you know, his phone on the on the Brillo box. But my dad, I think they wanted to really put it front and center and, and showcase it right in the living room. And they had a baby. Like, they had me. I was two months old at the time. And they, you know, they just didn't want to take any chances. Was the decision to let go of the Warhol uh, work, even if it was in the ultimate goal of acquiring more art, was that controversial between your parents? And do you think that reflects anything about their 
different views on why they were collecting art? I think the bottom line is my mom just loved it more um, and had more of a passion for Andy's work. Um, but on the other side of it and sort of how it plays out in the film is that it is kind of symbolic of their differences and and how they viewed the practice of art collecting, that my mom really did want to hold on to everything. She never wanted to assign any monetary value. She didn't like the idea that if my if there was a profit made in a sale that upset her because this whole idea of, and it's a problem in our culture too, like how do we put value on things that really are highly intangible and are really priceless in a way. My dad was a more of a practical person. Like we only had so many walls and we had three kids and we were growing up in Manhattan. So, you know, like things had, you know, things had to go. Um, and I think that I looked at, you know, as I got to know, because when I started the film, I didn't think of the different layers and the different subtexts to why that work was sold or what it meant about how they, how my parents as individuals viewed the works. And as I, as I kind of discovered that, it really struck me as highly emblematic of just the problem of art in our, in our culture. The you know, problem the pro- of art. Yeah. I mean, it's um, that things have to have a, you know, a quote value. And sometimes those values don't get determined until well after the artist passes away. Trends are a very fluid thing. And, and artists' lives and careers, you know, are, are shaped by that. So coming to this film as a creative person, that was, you know, a real kind of subtext theme for me. Lee Sandskyler's documentary, Brillo Box, Three Cents Off, is available through HBO for video on demand. This weekend, she'll host a screening at the Loft Cinema on Sunday, September 24th at 2 p.m., followed by a Q&A session. There's a link for more information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Does this voice sound familiar to you? Broadway. Approaching. Pantano. If it does, that probably means you're at least an occasional rider of Suntran buses or the Tucson streetcar. Or it may mean that you already know Kay Long. She's a voice artist who lives in Marana, and she records narration, prompts, and assorted messages for a wide array of businesses. You might say in some ways that Kay is the Siri of Southern Arizona. Well, besides being the voice for Suntran and the Tucson Transit System, I do a lot of messages on hold for dentist offices and doctor's offices and the voice that sounds like, thank you for calling. The doctor is not available right now, but your call, Mark, your call is important to us. You make me feel that it is. Thank you. It's acting. And I'm not saying I'm not sincere and believable, but I need to sound believable and sincere. When you're at the grocery store, just out living your life, do people typically recognize your voice? They do not. I do a lot of non-broadcast voiceover work. Now, if they knew that I was a voice for a local car commercial, which I am, they might recognize my voice. But most of the work I do is non-broadcast. It's called industrial voiceovers. That's narration for corporations. It could be phone prompts is what we call them. When I say the word phone prompt, and that means I'm prompting the caller to action. They may need to press 9 for more information. So people may recognize my voice for that, but a lot of the narration work I do might be for private industry that never is aired and no one would, would recognize my voice. 
How long ago did your association with Suntran begin? I would say probably close to 15 years ago. I knew a producer in town who said, I think um, we'd like to use your voice. He represented Suntran, did some advertising for them, and, uh, and it turned into doing the prompts for the bus first. And then it turned into the streetcars. So it's been a number of years, and as they keep adding intersections or changing routes, then I record more work. I wondered about that, how many sessions that has amounted to over 15 years. Any estimate? Hard to estimate. Um, Sometimes I have a boatload of intersections, and then sometimes just 20 or 30 or 40 prompts that may come in um, quarterly. Um, The streetcar, of course, was a big excitement three years ago when the streetcar launched. And and so that was a lot of work as well. Um, I was there opening day. That was exciting. Nobody knew it was me. But I'd ask some children, I said, do you hear that voice? Do you think she's real or do you think she's a robot? And they'd say, I think she's a robot. I said, no, it's me. It's me right here. And so there was a little bit of claim to fame there with pictures being taken and, uh, and just a lot of fun. But no, most of the time people don't know me. When people find out what you do for a living, what's the first thing they want to know? What kind of questions do people have about voice work? Well, one question I think they ask is, how did you get started? Now, I'd had a background in radio and television production, and I'd been a producer and director and a person that works behind the scenes, and I often directed a lot of voice talent. But I take them back to when I was five years old. I grew up in New Jersey. You wouldn't believe that I used to walk my dog in the auditorium and drink coffee and uh, enjoy meatballs and spaghetti sauce. But I'll say to people, think of what you really enjoyed doing as a child. That's how I knew I wanted to do voice work. When I was five years old, I would go to bed at night listening to New York City radio. I grew up in Westfield, New Jersey, about 25 miles from Manhattan. And I would go to bed at night listening to voices on the radio. This was the premier talk radio station in America before there were any talk radio stations. And it was WOR AM 710 in New York. This was talk show hosts who would interview Broadway talent or comedians or or politicians. But as a five-year-old, I didn't know any of the content. I didn't understand what they were talking about. I listened to the emotion in their voices. I listened to diction, pacing, and timing, and accents. I was really absorbed with the power of the human voice to sell, to inform, and to persuade. Then by first grade, I was begging my parents to let me be on a game show in New York City for children. Now, my idea was not to win prizes at this game show. It was to be discovered as the next little girl selling Wonder Bread. I had braids. The commercial showed a little girl with braids. I thought, I want to do that. Well, it didn't happen. But by the next year, in second grade, when I took a shower, I was doing shampoo commercials. (laughs) The microphone actually was the shower head above me. But I learned there that I loved to use my voice and that there was some future in this. And so I went into broadcast journalism, and little did I know, didn't do a lot of voice work, voice acting. Did mostly announcing, which is what I call announcing from the neck up. And not really trying to sound believable or convincing in the copy and voice acting, but just reading copy. And there's quite a difference. Let's use the Suntran recordings as an example. Uh, Did you have someone giving you direction when you did some of those recordings? Not at all. 
Most voice talent nowadays don't go to a professional studio where there's a director or a producer. It's done in a home studio, and that's where I did it. I learned to direct myself. Any voice talent now needs to be their own director, their own producer, their own sound editor, and their own marketer. So as I approach the Suntran voice prompt work, I am directing myself, and I am thinking of the environment of the bus. Somebody might say, well, how hard is it to say Broadway approaching Craycroft? You know, it doesn't sound hard. But here's the way I approach it. I think of the environment on that bus and all the noise, all the audio clutter that I'll need to overcome. But not in a bombastic way, but in a polite, friendly way that alerts the bus rider to their next stop, uh, that doesn't intrude on whatever they're doing, but it's a pleasant background noise that's just a little notch brighter than all the noise down below. On our way into the studio today, I asked if you had some water, and you said you did, and mm -hmm. you said it was warm. Yes, I like warm water, uh, and a little bit of lemon juice never hurts, and that's great for the voice. And besides that, I've been told that having a apple, a green apple, not a red apple, but a very tart green apple, helps absorb a lot of mouth noise. Hmm, that's a good tip. Mm -hmm. Didn't know that one. And also, vocalizing before you record. Ah, warm-ups. Yeah, you've probably heard of them. Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather. Or mixed biscuits. Mixed biscuits. Uh, let's see another one. Oh, near my hometown, Unique, New York. Unique New York. And you say them quite frequently and rapidly, and you will mess up. But it's okay. It's mm. just relaxing your jaw. Um, to see if I'm popping my peas oh. in the microphone, I say pepperoni pizzas. Yes, I love that. Let's, <laughs> let's go out. Okay. We'll be back later. This is Arizona Spotlight. <laughs> Well, Kay, it was a delight meeting you, and now that I've heard you speak in real life and right here through my headphones up close, I think I'm aware of subtleties to your voice that I didn't hear before, and uh, I don't think that my rides home on the bus are going to be the same. <laughs> That's good. And may I say at the end of any interview, stop, requested. The next time you hear her voice, remember, Kay Long is a real person, not a digital recreation. Next stop, Church Street. The Tucson Community Center. Doors to my left. Millions visit Arizona's state parks and attractions each year, but few probably consider the unpaid people behind the scenes who are vital to these places' operation. In fact, volunteers contribute millions of dollars to our state annually and supporters say the situation is beneficial for everyone involved. Next, Tony Paniagua introduces us to a couple who dreamed of being right where they are now for decades. A visit to a distant location can often leave a memorable impression on you. Perhaps it was the clear blue skies and bright golden sunset in the desert, or a hidden creek among the trees. That's what happened to Jerry Bice when he lived in Arizona when he was younger. It took a while, a long while, but Jerry finally returned with his wife Lita when they retired. I was working in Arkansas. Uh, I was stationed here at Fort Huachuca back in the 70s when I was 17. And I told my wife, I said, one of these days I'm going back to Arizona. So when I hit 65, I came back to Arizona. <laughs> 
Are you glad he brought you to this state? Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, it's got its own beauty. It took me a little bit to get used to, but I'm I'm coming around in that, so it's it's nice. It's a different type than what I'm used to in Arkansas. However, with year-round opportunities for fishing and other activities, Patagonia Lake State Park reminds them of home. It is much greener than the surrounding desert, and you can even go out on a boat every day. So when the Bices were looking for a place to volunteer, now that they have more time on their hands, they chose this park. The lake covers more than 250 acres in a diverse ecosystem. We actually came back in March and camped out and we fell in love with it. And we were in the visitor center talking to some of the volunteers and they told us about the program. And that's how we got in contact with it and started doing it. And it's been very rewarding. We've got to meet a lot of people from a lot of places and stuff. They're out and about at least four hours a day, five days a week. Along with brooms, mops, and other tools, they're also armed with positive attitudes and easy smiles. Nothing is too good for them. They get their hands dirty, and they're proud. I work in the visitor center, and then I help out in the field, cleaning bathrooms, picking up trash, and just cleaning the whole area. We have cigarette butts, we have bottle caps, we have pool tabs, we have everything. If we see it, we pick it up. Mm -hmm. We want the park to stay beautiful. And, you know, we've been uh, so many times people has walked up to us and said, this park is really kept nice. In return, the Bices get some perks from the state, such as free electricity and a hookup for their camper. They let you know that you're appreciated and stuff, so, yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest, uh, these volunteers are a huge asset. Mary Warman is the volunteer program manager for Arizona Parks and Trails, which operates nearly three dozen parks. At any given time, Warman has about a thousand volunteers in the system. They contribute about five million dollars worth of work to the state each year. They are what Arizona State Parks and Trails represents. Uh, without them, we cannot provide the wonderful experience to Arizonans or to any visitors from out of state. Uh, we literally have a wonderful program because of the volunteer help. And Warman says you don't necessarily have to be an outdoors type to join the teams around the state. we got volunteers that are stronger at working with the public and social skills and presentation. Then I have volunteers who don't want to do that type of volunteering. They would prefer to be behind the scenes and, and helping file stuff and stocking inventory. So there's something for everyone. For Lita and Jerry Bice, their time at Patagonia is part of a plan to see the country by working at different state and national parks. You know, we're going on this little adventure, we call it, and we will end up back in Arizona every year. It took him nearly 50 years to come back for good, so he's looking forward to returning home after the journey. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. You can see pictures of Jerry and Lita Bice and find a video story about Patagonia Lake State Park on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.